Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I am joined today by a man who has been 27 years in the travel industry. He's worked for some of the best known brands in travel. We've known each other for quite a number of years. And this is Mr. Mal Barrett, the CEO of Travel Tech. Welcome to the podcast, Mal. Thank you very much, Jeanette. Very good morning to you. I'm delighted to be here. Great to see you, Mal. And uh, yeah, honestly, we have known each other for a few years. So it's wonderful to be able to, you know, get to know you even more through this podcast. So it's great to have you on. You know what, Mal, I think a cool place to start, as I like to start most of my uh, discussions with people, is with your journey, where life started for you. Who is the real Mal Barrett? Right. Okay. Well, uh, best place to start, I suppose, is where I was born. So as I'm sure uh, many of the listeners can already gather. Uh, I'm from uh, Northern Ireland. So I grew up in a town called Newton Ards is how you said, but if you were looking at it on a piece of paper, it would be New Town Ards. Um, so I was born there in uh, December 1972. So I'm currently 40, uh, 48, but I would actually argue it is 47 because I think we'll all agree that last year was a was a write off. So we'll all wipe a year off our lives. <laughs> um, so I grew up there in uh, Belfast, 1972, and really at the height of the Troubles. So I came from a, a very strict Roman Catholic family, uh, mother and father, both very devout um, Catholics, um, grew up in a Catholic family. Uh, one brother, one sister, brother a year older than me, uh, sister three years older than me. Um, my early years were being taught by nuns and uh, and also and, and observing and that some on some occasions being um, uh, privy to a lot of uh, discipline from the nuns. So uh, obviously a very strict educational background. And then I progressed from junior education past my eleven plus, um, as it was called in those days, and uh, managed to get myself a place in a, in a Catholic grammar school in East Belfast called St Patrick's. Um, an all boys school at the time. Then we merged with the girls' school, so you can imagine what that was like for all these boys who had always been in that school on their own for a good number of years. Um, <laughs> and then I think, you know, when I got, got into the first year or so of, of grammar school and, and progressing quite nicely, um, there was an event that happened to me that probably has changed, has ch- changed my life uh, forever. Um, and I think, you know, Jeanette, you and I have talked about this before, you know, growing up in Belfast at the height of the Troubles, you know, it was very, very difficult, especially if you were a Catholic. Um, you know, there was a lot of discrimination, sectarian violence that was that was ongoing on a daily basis. And of course, you think even though, you know, you're a good Catholic boy and all the rest of it, you, you probably will never come across or experience some of this firsthand yourself. And I actually um, had a very unfortunate event that happened to me, which was, my father uh, was driving back one evening from Belfast. My dad has, was, has been a, a serial entrepreneur, always been in the car industry, had his own car businesses, car sales, car workshops, all that kind of stuff. So he'd be regularly back and forth, traveling around all over Northern Ireland. 
And he had a, a, a very unfortunate incident that happened to him whereby he was flagged down. But what he thought at the time were two, uh, we called them OUC uh, policemen back in the days. It's changed now, of course, with the, with the Good Friday Agreement. But he was flagged down by what he thought was two OUC constables. And they asked him to drive up a lane. Um, and one of them jumped into the back of the car uh, behind him uh, while they were asking him to drive up this lane a gun to the back of his head and uh, pulled the trigger and tried to murder him. And as you can imagine, I'm sure we can, we can all imagine what must have been going through his head at that point in time. Luckily, the safety catch was actually on the gun and the, the trigger didn't go off and, and the bullet didn't uh, leave the gun. He then tried to get out of the car. He parked the car up at this stage. He tried to get out of the car and they were scrabbling around trying to... Uh, uh, unlock the safety catch and managed to fire a number of bullets as he was getting out of the car, hit him twice actually, shot twice at that point. And then he managed to, to sort of crawl up this lane in the dark and they shot a couple more times at him. In fact, I think he ended up being shot five times in the end of it all. Managed to crawl up this lane, uh, you know, obviously very much physically impaired through the through the bullets and managed to knock on a door and get some help from a farmer who called an ambulance and, and you know, saved his life, actually. Um, wow. And then he was taken to hospital intensive care for, for a good number of months. But the, 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 the incident, as he described it, and the event that sort of I experienced was just something that has never left me. And how I found out about it actually was the police arrived at the door knocked on the door um, and I answered the door that evening and they said uh, the real police this time um, they said you know is your mother in I said no she's she's out at choir practice or something like that she was doing something for the Catholic Church and I said but my sister's here who would have been I was 13 she'd be 16 at the time mm. so they said is your is your mum around and she said no she's out at choir practice I said well we need to let you know about your father and we're like what's happened well bad news he's been shot and he's in hospital of course all these emotions run through your head and yeah. you think my god is he is he is he dead is he going to survive and, and all this and of course these are the days where there's no mobile phone so we could even contact my mother you know had to just wait with a policeman in the house for her to come home mm-hmm. so you've all of this just erupting in front of you and you're just like my god this is just madness you know why, why has this happened to me why has it happened to my dad and um as the story went on, you know, he, he was in intensive care for, for a good number of months. And, you know, when we went to see him, there was armed police outside his hospital. Um, he was in a sort of a, had his own, had his own room in the hospital. Um, and, you know, you had all of that going on. And then you had all this trying to go back to school and what did people think? Did they think your dad was an IRA man? He wasn't. He was just a Catholic. And, he, you know, he was just, he was a victim of, of, of the troubles. Uh, you know, his loyalist paramilitaries had decided that they wanted to kill a Catholic and, and he was their chosen victim. Uh, now, luckily, of course, he survived it. Um, he's got like nine lives. We always call him the cat because he survived that. He survived multiple car crashes and motorbike accidents in his life. An amazing guy, actually, just physically just seems to get through it and mentally. Um, but when he when he recovered from this and got out of hospital, it was very, very difficult for him and my mother to, you know, continue with their relationship. And, and sadly, they split up a, a, as a consequence of, of that because it's just his mental and his physical state just wasn't there. And it was very erratic. His behaviours were erratic. And, um, 
you know, she decided she, she had just decided that she just couldn't continue in, in, in the relationship any longer. So we were then flung into a loyalist housing estate in wow. the town where we lived, having lived in a really pretty nice area, a nice house because my dad had his own business and all the rest of it. And uh, then we were subjected to three, four years worth of uh, discrimination whilst we lived in this housing area. We had um, letters put through our door that they were going to have to burn our house down because we were Catholics. We had mm. paint thrown over our windows. We had our windows put in with stones. We had constant teasing and taunting from all the other sort of teenagers and youths in around that area. And we, we, we battled through that for three or four years. And it was incredibly, incredibly tough times until my mum saved up enough money, actually, to buy, get a small deposit and move us to a house that she wanted to buy, a small house, but at least it was in a, in a more reasonably, um, you know, a decent area of, of the town. So, and then in amongst all of that, my dad went bankrupt as well. So, yeah, all, so it was like a volcano erupting all at once. So, yeah. And when you think of that, you think, how, how do you deal with it? You just do. You just have to. And there is no counselling or therapy in those or, or There wasn't anything like that in those days. So there was no support services to help you through those situations and try to equip you for later life because you've gone through this trauma uh, and these difficult experiences. So, you know, very tough times, very tough times. Wow. God, I mean, that that's that's such a, a, an impactful, uh, you know, your life then. And like you say, a bit of a catalyst from that one traumatic event with, for your dad. And then what sort of came from that and set you on a certain journey that obviously was a difficult one for for you and your mum and well for everyone actually involved. But um, that resilience that you that you build up through that mal because it must have been very very difficult. How has that helped or hindered you? Do you think uh, you know as an adult now looking back on it? Really helped me, and I'd say resilience is probably the uh, you know people always say what's your strengths, what's your weaknesses. I can only ever come up with one strength, and it is resilience because. The power and the, and the strength that something like that gives you when that happens to you, it's like you, you get into your head that if you can come through something of that nature and that those sorts of challenges, then you can accomplish anything. So I always use that to my advantage when I, when I, in business today, say, for example, or any even any personal circumstances that are challenging, I always remind myself of those years and say to myself, I came through that. I can come through anything, and I yeah. use it to my advantage now, and it, 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 it makes a massive difference. Yeah, so so you almost use it as a comparator and say, "Well, that's my base point. You know, yeah. it's going to be as bad as that. So actually, why not? You know, get on and give it a go." Um, approach. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, you know, so I try. You know, I I ended up going to university for a very short period of time. Um, after I'd finished my A-levels, I had designs on either being a bank manager or an FD in a company. So I was doing a banking and finance degree. But at that time of of, uh, of taking on um, the opportunity, I was actually going out with my first girlfriend at the time and had fallen madly in love with her. And uh, I had moved to Birmingham to take on this uh, degree in banking and finance. And then Three, four months into it, I just realized that I was homesick and I was in love with her and I wanted to come home. And I packed it in, came home, back to Northern Ireland again. And then my relationship with her finished three months later. So that was a good decision, wasn't it? <laughs> so anyway, I had all these designs for going back to university in Northern Ireland. And sadly, I just didn't have enough money 
to be able to do it. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd sort of consumed all my grant funding in the other course, and I just couldn't make the numbers work without getting into serious debt. So I decided to try and get a job. And that was easier said than done. You know, again, it's difficult in those times. It was the height of the troubles. Catholics weren't really getting any jobs, if I'm being honest. It was really, really difficult for them. So I remember I counted that I applied for 102 jobs. And the only job that I was I ended up being successful for was working at a kettle factory, making plastic kettles. So if any listeners ever remember the Morphe Richards plastic kettles, there's a good chance I've maybe made one of those if you've had one of those in the past, because I used to have the job of welding the spout onto the base of the kettle. But after six months of doing that, I just thought, I can't stay here. I just can't. There must be more to life than this. So I progressed to being an admin assistant in the civil service on a temporary contract for a year. And of course, it was a bit better than the cattle factory, but it still wasn't great. And I just still had all these designs of, I can do better than this. You know, surely there's more to life than this. And then I saw an advert in the Belfast Telegraph. That's how jobs were advertised in those days. Of course, you know, the internet wasn't really heard of back in the early 90s and um, saw a job for um, a sales, reservation sales uh, um, agent for British Midland, the airline, which was the second largest airline in Europe at the time, actually. And I thought, that sounds quite cool. I think I could sell airline seats and I think I could probably do that. So, and I thought, well, it's moving back to England again. Well, I've lived there for three or four months. Surely I can do it again. And I kind of got a year, 18 months under my belt, so the homesickness wasn't going to be a problem. And I wasn't in that relationship anymore. So applied for the job, got the job, moved over to the Midlands. So it was in a, it was in a place called Donington Hall, was the head office in Derbyshire. Um, beautiful building, Gothic mansion. And uh, went through a four or five week training program, managed to be successful through the training program. And then I was on the phone selling airline seats and that, I think, was the start of my career because it's just the experience was amazing. Talking to customers, understanding how to sell, understanding how to deliver customer service. And uh, I really enjoyed it, was good at it. Um, then the opportunity came up to, um, I thought, I wouldn't mind working at an airport, being part of an airline. You want to you feel that you're part of it by, you know, understanding how the airport infrastructure works, the logistics, the processes. So I saw an opportunity to um, go onto the ticket desk at Leeds Bradford Airport. It was a maternity leave cover. I thought, well, that'll be good because I, I don't know if I want to do it forever, but I wouldn't mind getting the experience of doing it. So applied for the maternity cover, got the job, uh, moved up to Yorkshire for six months, went out to work at Leeds Bradford Airport. And I can honestly say today still, that is probably the hardest job I've ever done in my life, working on that ticket desk. Because for those of you who know Leeds Bradford Airport, it's notorious for bad weather, particularly low cloud. So there could be a number of days and five days in a row on one occasion where there was no flights able to come in or out. And of course, Leeds through London, through to, uh, the world was, was a very common theme for a lot of the, the customers who lived up and around that area. So you'd have days where the customers would come up and say, I need to get to South Africa today, I need to get to Los Angeles, I'm like, no plane. So you had to reroute their tickets and the, the queue was getting longer and, and so on and so forth. And it was really, really challenging. That was hard work. There was sometimes there you weren't getting out of that airport until one or two o'clock in the morning until the last customer had been rerouted and, and, and the flights being moved to Manchester and they could go from there the following day. 
really, really tough, but I learned so much about customer service. Yeah, and, and, and then, you know what? You're right. You're right. Sorry to interrupt, interrupt you, Mal, but yeah. I think it's a really important point, actually, because when you have been at the grassroots like that, you really do learn your trade, don't you? And, you know, to, to be facing customers. And I always think sometimes in business, the more senior that you get, you can, there's a danger that you become removed from the customers. Um, and I know when you and I worked together, we would always absolutely dedicate time to getting back to the floor, really, you know, spending time with customers and those skills, those selling skills and problem solving, because that's what you're doing in that role, have stayed with you, haven't they, throughout your whole career and the way that you show up is all about. 100%. I learned everything about sales and customer service at British Midland, everything I Mm. still have today, I learned there. And to be fair to the company, they were amazing at supporting and developing and training people to be able to be experts at service. Service was the absolute sort of overarching principle in everything that company had running through its veins. Um, so yeah, you're right, it never leaves you, Jeanette. And I ended up, the maternity leave finished, came back to uh, the head office, into the back into the reservations office. Job came up as a team leader, applied for the job, managed to get it. And uh, I absolutely loved it. And that was my first experience of managing people. So I had a team of 14, 15 sales consultants, reservation agents, did that for about a year and then progressed through the ranks, supervisor, and finally ended up as head of operations, running a European pan call centre at 26 with 250 people under my sort of uh, authority. And, uh, you know, that was another fantastic attribute that British Midland had, which was let's develop people. Let's give them opportunities. And my boss at the time would always say to me, who are the three names that are going to do your job after you? Because we want to have succession planning. So they're very, very focused on succession planning. The pay was crap, but the jobs were brilliant. (laughs) So so, um, so it didn't pay well. But you got the opportunity and you got the development and you learned so much. And then I got a call about an opportunity in Manchester. And I'd always loved Manchester because... I'm a big Man United fan, so I thought the lure of going to Manchester to open up a new call centre on behalf of uh, the Avis Group, Car Rental Group, was just too much to turn down, and the money was great as well. Not a bit, I'm being quite honest. The salary was just too good to turn down, and we probably all come across that in our careers where you think, you know what, the money's just too good to turn this one down. So I took that opportunity, moved to Manchester, um, with my girlfriend at the time, and uh, we settled in Manchester, and I I opened up and ran the Avis Call Centre for a couple of years before progressing on and doing a couple of other call centre operational roles before landing at what I would say was my real first big senior role, which was uh, director of call centres at My Travel. So I was delighted to get that job back in 2004. I was recruited by a great guy called John Bloodworth, who ended up actually latter years being my chairman uh, in our cruise business. And uh, John sold me the dream, said, it's going to be fantastic. You've got all these skills. We've got 12, 13 call centers all around the UK and Ireland. Uh, You know, great opportunity for you. And I thought, really bought into this. First day I arrived, he said, look, I need to have a conversation with you. So I arrived into his office and he goes, look, we've got, I think it was 12 at the time, 12 call centers. I need you to take that down to two over the next two years. <laughs> so I'm like, I thought I was here for a growth plan. So my job for two years was to consolidate, reduce, 
call centres. But as part of that, the positive aspect of it was, was develop a large homeworking community. So every time we shut the site down, we were retaining some of the great staff through homeworking. And I think we were probably, other than travel councils, we were probably one of the pioneers at homeworking back in those days, because this is back in you know 2004, so it's a significant number of years ago. And it's amazing now when we look at the pandemic and people are saying, oh, I'm working from home and I'm, I'm adjusting to working from home. You know, we do it in 16, 17 years. Um, so, so that was the positive aspect of it all. But I loved my, my time at my travel air tours, as, as many people will probably know. But as you know, Jeanette, and I'm not sure where you were, at that point in time, you know, there was four big tour operators and four really couldn't survive on their own. Four had to become two because of the emergence of lastminute.com, Expedia, all, all the online travel agencies. The world was changing and how consumers were booking holidays and a lot of the traditional tour operators had a lot of cost in them and hadn't really moved online to the extent these OTAs were in place. So, mm. so two, four had to become two. So we went through the merger and our, our chosen partner was Thomas Cook. So my travel merged with Thomas Cook. And I was offered a new role in the company as um, heading up all the call centres for the combined entity. Um, but I was still living in the Northwest and I was travelling up and down to Peterborough, uh, where HQ was for Thomas Cook. Uh, three days a week and I started to travel up and down with a guy from my travel called James Cole who was in charge of the cruise distribution business within my travel and him and I would take turns driving up and down we get to know each other quite well and, and we got on and, and all the rest of it and he rang me one Saturday and he said listen he said I'm getting fed up with this he said just culturally he said the environment's not for me I'm getting fed up traveling up and down he said I'm thinking of setting up my own um, business, selling cruise holidays, and I'd like you to come and join me. And I said, James, I'd love to. He said, I know nothing about cruise, nothing at all. He said, don't worry about that. He said, I know all that. He said, I know all the product side, the marketing, the commercial side. He said, what I need is a business partner that can do all the technology, all the sales, all the operational side, all the administration. He said, would you, would you be interested in it? Yeah, why not? It took me about two minutes to make the decision. I said, well, what does it look like? He said, well, let's meet up. So we met up. We decided to craft this plan to start up this cruise holiday business. And we came up with the name of Cruise 118. But we didn't want to just start it as Mal and James's little travel agency and just, you know, have a couple of staff working for us. We wanted to grow this into something fairly substantial over time. So, and I think one of the one of the, the lessons here was, and the, the advice I'd give anyone else is to start with a, the end in, in sight. Where do you want to be in five years' time with this business? And we had a plan which said we want to be at 50 million in revenue and making a million to be the dad by the time you get to year five. So then, of course, you do all your business planning, uh, your um, financial forecasts, your cash flow forecasts. And we worked out we needed probably a million quid to start this, to get this business up and running and get it through its losses in the first 18 months and so on. So we went on this journey of raising money. So we managed, we had redundancy packages from Thomas Cook, thank you very much, very generous. Um, so we, we, we ring-fenced that and we also um, remortgaged our houses as well. And this is a really important lesson, I think, in all of this, is that, you know, investors want you to have some skin in the game yourself they want to see that you're putting some money in alongside their money they don't mind you taking a salary but they want to see you putting some some of your own personal money in to start your own company 
Um, and that was the advice our accountant, a very old wise owl of a, an accountant gave us. He said, look, you need to be, if your investors are putting a pound in, they want to see you're, you're putting at least 50p towards that or a pound towards that. Mm. So we took that advice on board. And I think James and I, between us, we raised £100,000 each. Um, so we needed another 800 grand. So we got 600000 from private investors. Some of these were friends that we knew were putting in 25, 50 grand. Some of them were people we didn't even know. Uh, I mean, one guy, we did a presentation to him and halfway through, he said, I'm going to have to interrupt you. I've got a horse running in a race. I need to go. He said, but I'm in for 50. And off he went. <laughs> and it was like a dragon's den. He said, tapped us on the shoulder, but I'm in for 50 grand. And off he went and he ran away. We never saw him again. And we kept it through our accountant because he was a, a client of our accountant, kept chasing him down, no response. All of a sudden, a check turns up one day for 100 grand, just out of the blue. <laughs> so you get like lovely positive surprises along the way with this stuff. We raised some money of the government for setting up staff in Northern Ireland. We created a homeworking community in Northern Ireland. So we got some funding from the government. And all of that, we raised a million quid to start this business. And we launched it in June 2008. In September 2008, the world collapsed. The credit crunch hit. So we we're like, Christ, you know, demand started to slow down. We had built up this big operation. I think we had about 25 staff to begin with. So we were burning through cash quite quickly. And of course, we were we had TV ads going, we had newspaper ads, we we're doing loads of PR, and and the money was just reducing, reducing, reducing over time to the point we got in December, six months in. I remember it was four days before Christmas, with 25 grand left in the bank, and payroll was going to be 35 grand, I think it was, for, for the month. And we promised everybody we'd pay them on the 23rd of December. I was thinking, James, how are we going to solve this problem? We just don't have enough money. We're going to run out of cash. And so the panic sets in. You think, all that money, all that investor's money, all our old money, it's all going to go down the tubes. Mm. Luckily, another stroke of luck, we'd re We'd got, been going through a process to refinance the technology. We bought all the laptops and all the technology we needed, and then we'd agreed with Lombard Financial Services that we would go through a refinancing of it. So they, they'd take it on and they'd basically lease it back to us and, and give us a check. And the, on the 20, I think it was the 21st of December, we got a check for 50 grand off Lombard for all the technology. It went into the bank, managed to pay the staff, and then January kicked in and the sales inquiries and the sales went through the roof so it's just it's funny it's just you get things there's always a solution to every problem and sometimes you need a stroke of luck along the way and and we were lucky genuinely lucky in that business as well I feel that's great I'm gonna I'm gonna loop back if I may Mal so much in here um and and we'll 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 touch on the the sort of the the end of the story if you like in terms of where you are now and and kind of what's happened but you know when you look back to sort of yourself as a child and you you said a couple of things earlier that you said you knew there was more to life you had a belief that there was more to life when you were working putting the solder in the the spout on (laughs) how did you know there was more at that point, because presumably the people around you, you know, were not necessarily showing you a pathway to something different. So how did you know deep down that there was more for you than what you were doing right then? I think you always um, get inspired by people around you sometimes. And my dad never actually told him this. I probably should tell him this, but he did inspire me in a number of ways through his entrepreneurship. So, you know, this is a guy who had nothing you know, started fixing cars, 
managed to save enough money to buy a car, then sold that car, made a bit of profit, and then built up a nice business, then went bankrupt, and then mm. built it up again. And now he's very, very successful, actually. And I think, you know, ha- having him in and around me, you know, there was a lot of negative influences at times, but that was certainly one positive influence that I can definitely remember that helped me with my mindset and think there's 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 always an opportunity to do better regardless of your circumstances but you have to take control of this yourself no one can do it for you you've got to own it you've got to believe in it yourself and have that belief and you know when you look at all the successful people that we all know um or or famous successful people it's never been handed to them on a plate. They've just believed in themselves, they've believed in their own ability, and they've also believed in a dream and a vision that they've had of, of, of their life and the future. And that's what I've always had in my head. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a real simple equation to success, and I am oversimplifying massively here, but I think it's a combination of belief plus purpose plus action equals results. You know, yeah. which, as I say, it's overly it's it's an overly simplistic version, but actually, that's what it boils down to. Because we can talk, we could talk about mindset for hours, right? Absolutely. Um, but when you actually boil it down, that self belief it starts with the internal you. Um, and I see so often with you know the mentee clients that I have that very often they have some mental blockers, baggage, mm. like that for some reason is just really holding them back, whether it's the old imposter syndrome that kicks in a lot or or whatever it is, those limiting self-beliefs. And it's not until you can throw them off or work with someone that can help you throw them off that you can really move forward, I, I think. Um, and, you know, you're a great example where you had quite a lot of trauma in your early life, but you've actually channeled that in the right way to be able to move forward in your career and in your business life. Um, and your dad being such a, an incredible, inspiring motivator for you. But what I want to touch on, Mal, is the you talked about there being negative people around you and a lot of kind of aggression as well in that environment yeah. you were in. How did you, or, or what are the tools that you would advise other people? How do you ignore those naysayers, those negative people or people that are aggressive towards you? How do you you know, not let that bring you down and instead focus on the positive because that is sometimes very difficult for people, I think. So how, what's your been your well, to that? Well, the first thing is, if you can, don't have them in your life. <laughs> that's point number one. I know that's yeah. not always absolutely, I know that's not always physically or emotionally possible, but, you know, I, I've taken a view over the last number of years that, you know, I try and have a circle of people around me friends and family who are positive influences in my life rather than negative influences. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is I think you can use people's negative energy and negative words and phrases to fuel motivation. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things, um, you know, I've had in the past is somebody said, well, that's just not possible. You're never going to get that business off the ground. And that has galvanized me even more. It's motivated me even more to do it. And I also think that uh, one thing that I always find, especially in business these days, is that people will always come up with problems without the solutions. And I always think there's always a solution to every problem. You just got to look for it. You know, you've got to maybe jump over the wall. You've got to bust through the wall. You've got to tunnel under the wall or go around the sides of the wall if that wall's in place. But there's always a way. You just got to dig deep and find it. So I, I actually don't mind 
you know, hearing sometimes negative um, sort of words, phrases, narratives, because I just take it and I think, well, actually, I'll just use that to become, use, use it towards motivating me more to do better and to mm. do more things in life. So, so that's yeah. how I look at it. And and that jump that you made, Mal, out of corporate world, and, and obviously, you know, you're doing your stripes. You were in a very senior role then. And let's face it, you know, the bells, the whistles that comes with that, the security, the package, the car, the pension, all of that that comes with, with not just with corporate, but just being in a senior role. To then jump out into the entrepreneurial space uh, with not much of a parachute, <laughs> but a bit of a parachute. So for people that are listening and thinking, actually, yeah, I really fancy giving it a go, being my own boss. They might not have had the entrepreneurial influence of someone like you had with your dad around them. But what would you advise would you give to them, um, apart from start with the end in mind, which I fully support that that perspective, Mal, but just some thoughts in terms of how you managed to make that leap yourself? Yeah, well, I, I just feel that as you, as you, as you um, go through your career, you see other people going on their own and being successful and kind of you, you think about it and you go, I wonder, could I do that? So you start to ask yourself those sorts of questions. I also think that um, when you, you're in those big corporate jobs, yes, of course, they are more safe and secure and all the rest of it. But you think, you know, is there more than just this? You know, yes, of course, it is a it's a lovely job with big salary and car and all the rest of it. However, you know, have I got more to give? Have I got more ambition? Um, so I think it's it's asking yourself those questions on, on, a, on a continuous basis. But my advice would be is follow your dream and do it. What have you got to lose? You can always go back and get another corporate job. That's the way I look at it as well. And you only get one life. You only, we all only get one shot at this. So make the most of it and try and enjoy it. And I flip-flopped a bit from corporate life to entrepreneur <laughs> life, back into corporate life. And do you know what? I probably flip-flop into entrepreneur life again. You know, I'm in a bit of a quasi-entrepreneur world at the minute where it's private equity-backed business. And, uh, you know, I have investment in the company. But, you know, I kind of go from one to the other. Because I enjoy both, but I'm somebody that gets bored very easily. So when I get bored, I'll move on. And I think that's a key thing. If you're bored and you need to be challenged, go and do something different. You know, challenge yourself to do it. Um, there's yeah. nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Yeah. And I, and I think you're absolutely right, because sometimes it drives me a bit crazy that, you know, people tend to talk about corporate and entrepreneurial as one being good, one being bad. And the reality is that actually there's pros and cons of, of both. There is. There are there are situations where you can get a good combination. And I think, you know, you and I, when we first met, when you became the MD of Destinology, when we were together at Saga, it was a, you know, it was a good example of a, an entrepreneurial business within a corporate. Now, there, it wasn't perfect, of course, but it, it was it gives you a bit of structure, discipline, governance. And if you can take the, the good bits of that from the corporate backing, but still have the freedom and the flexibility uh, within the entrepreneurial aspect, which is a bit like what you've got now at Travel Tech to a certain degree, isn't it, Mal? You it, it is. Uh, you know, just, yeah, exactly. And I think reflecting on, I mean, the Destinology saga situation for me was, was like a perfect situation, really, because mm. you had, you know, you, as you say, you had an entrepreneurial business there which had a, a real sort of um, sort of the heart of the business is all about technology. And it's almost like the byproduct was selling luxury holidays through an exceptional technology platform. 
And when I joined it, you recruited me. Thank you very much, by the way. Um, <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> um, you know, we wanted to continue um, the business on its growth curve with an entrepreneurial sort of yeah. um, uh, objective in mind. But I think we, we took the benefits of what the big corporate animal could offer us. And the one thing I learned a lot in, in that time at Destinology, specifically working closely with Eugenette, was, was all about strategy. You know, I you know I probably not really got uh, my head around how you sort of create craft a proper strategic plan in in a, in a very professional and, and focused way, and then how you then go about executing that plan. Because you know, when I look at my, my eight years in the cruise business and the entrepreneurial environment for that, you're doing things very much off the seat of your pants every yeah. day. And you're in this sort of momentum of just making decisions every day and getting on with it. And it's grown so fast, you just keep going rather than maybe taking a step back and reflecting, okay, look, we need a proper strategy here. We need to understand what the product plan is going to be, the customer service plan, the technology plan, marketing, mm. so on and so forth. So I took a lot of learning. Everywhere I've been, I've tried to capture what are the key things that I've learned from that experience. And it's definitely around strategy and definitely around planning. Yeah, and and you know we we did take that very seriously, you know, and and actually we did put the effort into that, and I think it it also galvanizes the team behind a common vision, a plan, a purpose, and how you're going to get there. The strategy is how you're going to get there, you know. The purpose and the vision is the big picture stuff. Yeah. So um, I think also that that translates very well to life, right? Because what I see a lot is that if you ask someone what's your purpose very often they struggle to answer yeah. that and they don't know. And it's not because they 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 haven't um, got the capability to have that clarity. It's just that we're very busy in our lives and very often our careers or our jobs or our businesses, we just get on with it. And very rarely do we stop and take stock of where we are and what is important to us. Why am yeah. I doing all this stuff? What, what do I want to achieve out of my life? And, and it's, you know, whether you're talking about a business purpose or a personal purpose, it is so important. And, and I'd, I'd want to kind of come to that with you, Matt, as well, because we're a similar age, born 1972. It was a great year. Yeah, it was a great year. Uh, <laughs> a great pedigree. But yeah, and, and sort of I think when you get to a certain age in your life, when you've got more experience and, and you're kind of comfortable in your own shoes a little bit more, a bit more self-aware, you start asking yourself those questions. So for you, you know, your reason why and your purpose, for you, not for the business, for yourself, what does that look like now that you're at the stage you are in your life and career? Yeah, I think um, what I would say just before that is, you know, I think you're right. You get to a certain age and a certain part, you know, a certain stage in your career. And things that bothered you maybe in your earlier career don't bother you anymore. You're less sensitive to things. You're less prickly. You're less vulnerable. And, yeah. and also, I think as you mature as a leader, what you're very focused on is surrounding yourself with great people and better people than you are, because that will give your business the, the greatest chance of success. Mm. And I think what, what my purpose now is, is to lead Travel Tech um, as a CEO to a point of, of success, turn it to profitability and, and significant growth by developing uh, the pro building the product out and making the product better than it is today, and also growing internationally and uh, uh, significantly in North mm -hmm. America. So my purpose is to lead the company to that place. What happens after that? I mean, I have got you know, I look at myself and I think, you know, it's a, it's it can be very lonely, as you know. Yeah. 
in, in being doing a, a CEO role, um, you know, because nobody really checks in with you and asks you how you are. You know? <laughs> and you have to surround yourself with a good mentoring um, network, which, which I do. And I have two or three uh, mentors that I regularly speak with who offer me different things uh, in a different way. Uh, and I, I, would, I would say that that's one of the biggest pieces of advice I'd give to somebody when you're leading a company is get yourself some mentors uh, or a coach because it will help you. It will uh, make you feel like, you know, you, 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 you're you not going mad sometimes and, and you're not overthinking things. Um, but my, my coming back to your question, my, my purpose is to lead travel tech to success. And then after that, I see myself moving more into tech startup mode. I think mm. I may leave the travel industry. I don't know, but I definitely want to move more into technology and startup technology businesses. Yeah, no, that's fantastic to have that clarity. And like you say, you know, travel tech and being the CEO there, there's a lot still to go for and to play for. And, you know, to be, have the energy that you've got for that is fantastic to see. And, you know, technology is, is being such a key thing in particular of the last 12 months actually you know during all of the disruption that we've all for every sector has faced in the last 12 months so I think being leading edge from a tech point of view disrupting the model doing things differently and also that allows you to go global if you have that scalable tech that you're talking about Mal you know whether it's the travel tech the business that you lead or other businesses that makes a big difference, doesn't it, in terms of breaking down those barriers and it, it, to go global? It does. And I think the key to it all, there, there, there was a history, specifically in the travel industry, I think, where everybody wanted their own bespoke technology solutions. Um, and the challenge of that is you end up becoming, almost becoming a bit of a technology business yourself, where you've mm. created something that is only befitting to your own organization. And whilst that gives you some gains, to begin with, over time, you'll find that that will become strained because it needs to be supported on an ongoing basis. And, you know, the technology provider, you know, the person who maybe developed that piece of code for you is maybe left, you know, so then you're starting again with somebody else trying to learn it and understand it. Whereas the successful technology businesses these days build out a standardized product on a modular-based uh, way that can be scaled up and, and implemented in, in, and quicker into customer environments. And that's where we're trying to take travel tech is to standardize the product proposition, have it focused in a modular-based fashion and have it hosted in a, in a cloud-based environment so it does truly offer scalability and quicker time to implementation. Because you know as well, Gina, how many <laughs> pro technology projects have you been involved in and have taken years? Because, <laughs> you know, you want this... No, but you want this, you want that, you want the other. Yeah, and, yeah. And I, you know, and I think and I think the key is to take what the technology providers have and try and manage that through your environment. I know it's not always possible, but to work with what they've got and uh, manage and, and maybe change your processes to to work with the, within the system rather than trying to get the system to work with your processes. Yeah, spot on, Mal. I mean, you know, we've been involved in in a couple of projects together when we worked together. Mm. If you're not careful, you get you get scope creep, don't you? It grows yeah. on legs, and everyone wants a little bit. Oh, can I just have this kind of yeah. that? And before you know, budget's blown, time frame is doubled, and then by the time you get what the thing delivered, the world's moved on, and it's not. So did it. I think that's the key here as well. If you build, if you build out a standardized proposition in a cloud-based native environment now, 
it's fit for purpose for the future because, of course, the big cloud-based um, organizations such as Azure or Amazon, they're constantly adding new applications and tooling and innovations to their platform that you can access that can help you adapt and improve and evolve your, your own product. Yeah, so that, no, that's the key to it all going forward. Spot on, spot on. And actually, that brings me nicely to kind of sum up really, Mal, because I think there's a couple of words that stand out for me in terms of you as a man, as a leader, as a business person. Um, so one is resilience and two is agility. And I think what you're doing with travel tech and the business and your philosophy is all about, you know, resilience and agility. So you are yeah. exactly where you should be right now, it feels to me, that builds on you as the, Mal the person and Mal the, the business leader in that tech space. So that is really cool. I'm going to ask you now, Mal, if I may, just a, a few closing questions because it's been great chatting with you. I could go on for hours, really. I, I absolutely yeah. can, can both talk, you and I, Mal. I will say that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so my the, the next question for you is what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given the, be, the, the best the best piece of advice I've been given is just follow your dream just you know if you if you believe so much in your dream to accomplish what you want to accomplish just crack on and do it Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And this whole podcast is about being brave, bold and brilliant. So absolutely. Follow your dream is is key. And can you think of the worst piece of advice you may have been given? Yeah, it's almost the opposite of that, which was when we're setting up the uh, cruise 118 business. Someone told me, I'm not mentioning, oh, don't do it. Just stay in your corporate job. Uh, you, you know, it's much safer. There's more money there. You know, you'll have no pension, no car, all the rest of it. Just don't do it. I think it's a bad idea. I ignored that advice, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) You did, and the rest is history, as they say. But um, finally, Mal, what does brave, bold, brilliant mean to you? Well, I think from a brave point of view, it's about take the risk. You know, if you want to set up your own company, be brave and take take the risk. It's never going to be easy. Um, We all know that. It's tough. It's challenging. A new business is always hard. And I think it's about, you know, take the risk, but be prepared to get your hands dirty as well, mm. because, you know, it's important that you know that there aren't big resources around you to do all those jobs that you might need doing. You're going to have to do a lot of them yourself. So, and and yeah, that would be my, my view on Brave. Okay, fantastic. Any thoughts on Bold and Brilliant? Oh, Bold, yeah. I mean, I think be prepared to put some money into it as well. I mean, if you are going to set up a company and, and it does need some investment you, you need to take the leap of faith you need to be prepared for you know putting some of your own personal cash into the business because it, it is all about and if, especially if you're looking for other investors they want to know that their pound is alongside your pound in this venture um, and as i say they don't mind you taking a salary but they need to know you're in it in terms of your own personal cash you've got something to lose and then brilliant. I think it's all about, you know, for me, just staying positive, being optimistic, you know, working back from your vision and continuing to stay on track for your vision and don't let the sort of negative detractors bring you down. Use it as fuel to, um, you know, repurpose your own motivation and use it to become brilliant. I love that. That is the perfect way to finish, Mal. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been amazing chatting with you. Thank My you. pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, Jeanette. Nice to see you.